Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 32 in our series for 2015. And today's date is Friday the 11th of September. And Leon, what's on the schedule for this week? We're going to be having a chat with Sandra Jones. She's the Professor and Director of the Centre for Business Education Research at RMIT. And she's going to be talking to us all about RMIT's Living Learning Laboratory and how it works with business. Fascinating, really interesting. And then we're going to have a chat with RMIT economist Sinclair Davidson about are we in a recession or not? Yeah, and how big is it and what's it look like and what can we do about it? That's right. But anyway, first of all, let's have a chat with Sandra Jones. Sandra Jones, what is a living learning laboratory? Okay, the living learning laboratory is a new form of co-partnership between universities and external stakeholders, be they industry, government, community stakeholders. What it does, it presents stakeholders with the opportunity to experiment with creative and innovative ideas with students. It takes that pressure of I can't introduce something new because my market might be affected by it or whatever. It it takes it into what I call a safe file environment where industry, governments, community bodies can come in with an idea in a non-competitive space and experiment with creative solutions to that. So, and they can run it past students? Is that how it works? Yes. The idea is that an industry might have a very complex issue that they have no easy answer to or there is no easy answer. They can bring that to us. We can engage the students in one of their courses into experimenting with that. So the industry partner or the government partner will come in, say, this is the complex issue we're facing. The students can apply the theory of whatever course that they're doing to that. The students work in teams. They can work in cross-disciplinary teams to exploring that. And then they can present the answers that they come up with to the industry or the um, community body and the community body can say, ah, yes, that would be feasible or it wouldn't. So it just provides a bit more of a safe space. And they can do that to businesses as well? Yes, this can be business, it can be industry, it can be government. Traditionally, we've always had industry speakers who could come in and say to the students, right, here's an issue that we face um, as a case study. But this provides the opportunity for industry that's facing ever emergent complex issues in the world that we're in today, it gives them that space to come and say, well, this is the problem we face. What would you students do? Because we can bring the different disciplines together, we've experimented, we've brought engineering and management students together to work on an issue, then the students can come up with some creative ideas. Can you give me an example? Okay, we have a course in strategic management where we have final year engineering students and final year management students. A body came to us and said, we've got an environmental management issue. This was a body meaning a business? In this case, it was actually a land care group, but the land care group also had links to the water authority and through the council. So although it was a major issue for the land care group, it also involved the local council and the water authority. So you had a a non-traditional, a not-for-profit organisation, but also an industry coming into that. And so what sort 
of issue was it? The issue was they had an area of land that was being degraded. It was an open area of land. It was actually owned in acreage by 20 different people. So it was 20 different acres owned by 20 different people and nobody had authority over it. It was a beautiful area of land. The land care group were concerned because there was there was horses, there were bicycles, there was motorbikes, there were walkers, and they were trying to work out what they could do to manage this area over which they had no direct control, but what they could do to preserve it. It involved a local council that also had environmental issues and overlay issues on the land, and it involved a water authority because there was water going through it. The students worked with that. We made sure that all the authorities that were involved, we said we're not going to specifically come up with a simple solution. This is a complex issue. It's going to have a complex different areas. The students worked together through those cross-disciplinary teams using some of the theoretical principles that they were looking at in strategic management issues to propose different solutions. We had the authorities involved throughout the semester, so it wasn't just come and give us an answer at the end of it. We used technology so that the students were able to jointly work out which were the top 10 issues, so the students could vote up the top 10 issues that they would put to the industry. Industry came in a number of times, and at the end, the students who had identified some fairly sophisticated solutions, we worked with them so that they presented these issues to the authorities as potential ways of addressing this. And was the issues resolved? The issue's not resolved because it's a complex issue and it will go on, but what they have got is some different ideas on how they may market, for example, market what they're doing so that more people become aware of the issue, more people who are using that. They found that they were able to work with the authorities better because they had some ideas on how they could work with those authorities. So with the complex issues facing business, recognizing that there are not simple answers to complex issues. What it does is it allows you to work with those young minds, different technological solutions with them. When a business goes and pays a consultant to do something, then they expect an answer and that's what the consultancy is about. That consultancy might address part of the answer but not more of the answer, so it allows that um, to to develop. I guess um, the, the Living Learning Laboratory becomes like a test lab for businesses, doesn't it? It is. Throughout the world, they're experimenting with different types of living laboratories. Living laboratories in the environmental area are being looked at and learning laboratories are being seen as a way to use the online focus to develop student skills. Putting those two together and bringing them together as a living learning laboratory says what you've got in terms of the living parties, we're looking at complex issues that are occurring today. Learning is we're using knowledge, we're developing new knowledge. At the same time, the students are gaining skills to handle fairly complex issues. So the other part of this is we're graduating students with the skills 
that industry needs. So it's a complement to the work integrated learning type of um, I, but I guess I guess you would need a lot of uh, collaboration and engagement to get that going, wouldn't you? Yes. When I talk about the living learning laboratory, I talk about the fact that we really need a new mental model to think about this. And I call it the 3P mental model. And under that, what you need to accept is the principle of collaboration. And this is often a bit of a challenge at first. Industry is used to being competitive and being very careful about what it lets out in terms of information. But it is that concept of collaboration, not just collaboration about industry, but collaboration between university and industry. So instead of just being industry-led, what we are doing is saying, here's the university, we are a laboratory we provide that laboratory for you to come to. Come to us and let's see if we can work towards it. So the principle of collaboration, the practice of engagement, of actually engaging, we're very good now at identifying knowledge networks. What we're not so good at is working out what goes on between the different knowledge networks. Here's where the Living Learning Laboratory comes into. It's actually saying what goes on between the nodes in the knowledge networks. And the third P is that integration of integrating business and industry and universities much closer. I could imagine it would not be that difficult process for students to adjust to, but I would imagine for businesses it would be quite a major adjustment, wouldn't it? It is, and that's why I was very pleased. We had what we call a roundtable a couple of weeks ago, but instead of having a roundtable where people speak, we had roundtables. We had industry and um, university people sitting together and exploring how this thing called a living learning laboratory, how we might develop it, what might be our areas of opening up the boundaries. One of the interesting factors that I think came out of that was actually recognising that we need to think more in terms of people as boundary spanners. So focus less on the structures. Here's a structure of a university or here's a structure of a business or here's a structure of the government. But who are the people who can actually link the bodies across? By concentrating on the people, it was less of a challenge for companies, for businesses, for government to think about how we're going to break boundaries. So in terms of that idea of the people become the boundary spanners, in our case, the students are one set of boundary spanners. They can exist in both worlds. The academics are another area of boundary spanners. And the industry people who are the early adopters, you might say, are the ones who can show it. One of the examples we had at that roundtable was L'Oreal, and L'Oreal works very closely with students. They have for many years. They have what they called a brandstorm competition where they engage the students in exploring a new product, one of the products of L'Oreal, how they might market that, how they might develop that further. And we've been engaged with L'Oreal through our School of Marketing here for many years, and in fact our students this year, I think for about the seventh time, went off to Paris for the competition. So L'Oreal is one organisation that has been able to think about how we span those two areas. Any others? The other sort of groups that came to our roundtable were the Melbourne City Council came along, the Country Fire Authority and some people there because they're constantly looking at complex issues. And so we're attracting to this idea of the Living Learning Laboratory 
companies from the spectrum, from manufacturing, from service industry and local councils. Senator Shows, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Well, what do you think, Leon? That's pretty interesting. I think I think it's very good. I think it's a really interesting piece of work that, that you know has them actually working with businesses and developing their ideas. Because when you go back into the history of RMIT, it it was, in a sense, uh, relationships with businesses and with manufacturing was was very strong. Absolutely. Well, that's where it came out of. Yeah, very much. Now, Sinclair. Sinclair Davidson, we've had. The last GDP figures showed we had near zero growth. It's not recession. It was saved only by government spending. Yet parts of a country feel like they're in recession. What do you think actually constitutes a recession? Well, the, the, the normal definition of recession is a sustained general downturn in economic activity. That's sort of what everybody understands, and that's all very well and good. But of course, we live in an age and a time where things have to be measured. The way we measure it here in Australia is we say two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth and specifically seasonally adjusted GDP growth. So the, the trend figure and the raw figures and what have you, that nobody looks at those. Everybody looks at the seasonally adjusted figure. Um, that came in last week at 0.2%, which is uh, an accounting error away from actually zero or, or, or negative uh, growth. And uh, I, I reckon a lot of people in Canberra sighed uh, a huge sigh of relief saying, gee, we've, we've dodged a bullet here. But in actual fact, uh, for people who are either losing their jobs or have lost their jobs or are looking for a job, that's sort of very cold comfort, in fact. Um, we need to think about other measures in the United States. It's it's called by the National Bureau of Economic Research. They they, they define a whole bunch of indicators and uh, they call recessions, um, which is not two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. How should we measure recession then? I, I like the idea of, of looking at unemployment figures. So uh, Saul Eslake has the idea of if unemployment rises by, say, 1.5% over a 12-month period, that would be considered to be having been a recession because at at the end of the day, what we're really looking at is, are people working? Are things being uh, bought and sold? How's the economy actually tracking, not through some generalized, badly measured, timely sort of, or, or not so timely measure such as GDP, but sort of the, the, the real nuts and bolts of the economy? Are, are people working? I mean, I, I think that would be a, a good measure. And so I, I like Saul Eslake's idea. Um, I think a lot of work needs to be done to make sure that it's, it's correctly calibrated. But I, I think that would be a good place to start. The, the problem with two quarters of negative growth is by the time you get that, it's already too late, isn't it? It is indeed, yes. Um, re re recessions tend to be short, sharp affairs these days. I mean, we, we don't don't have like years and years of, of poor economic activity like we had, say, during the Great uh, the Great Depression. Um, it would be a short-lived affair, um, a few months, and uh, GDP comes out with a three-month lag. And of course, um, by the time we call a recession to having having started, it could be nine months after the fact we could be out of it. So we could actually then sort of be running around saying, "Oh, the economy's in recession." Start spending money, start doing all sorts of government intervention programs. But in actual fact, they're, they're not at all necessary. What other measures? should we have? The unemployment figure, um, I think that could, could come out more um, frequently. We could look at things such as company profits. Uh, we could look at things such as retail sales. Um, the government, of course, receives uh, 
tax on a regular basis. So if tax receipts start falling, if unemployment starts rising, if company profitability starts falling, these are all numbers which can come out on a, on a more regular basis. We could have a look at those sorts of indicators and track them back to uh, slowdowns in economic activity and actually come up with a, a much more timely measure and a, a much more realistic, relevant measure of, of what constitutes a generalized decline in economic activity. And of course, we can do these things on a regional basis as well, because bearing in mind, um, if the economy in Melbourne and Sydney is pretty slow, the economy in the rest of the country must be almost comatose. But uh, conversely, uh, you could have the economy of uh, Melbourne and Sydney doing okay, if not brilliantly, but uh, the economies in uh, Tasmania, South Australia might be languishing. Oh, absolutely. And and I, I think that is almost almost always the case, generally speaking, as well. Those two states' economies are pretty uh, maribund most of the time. Uh, the, the, the Tasmanian economy is particularly small. The South Australian economy is, is dependent on a, on a few things. Um, this is where you'd sort of, uh, you sort you, of, you'd like to see what they say in there. They currently got a, a commission of inquiry looking at uh, um, nuclear and uranium mining in South Australia, because that certainly would be a big mining boost for them if they could uh, exploit those resources more readily than they currently are able to. And I imagine that would give their economy a bit of a boost. So that, you know, those are the sort of things that they would be looking at. And uh, we'll find in the next few months uh, where they think things can come out of, out of sort of a, a uranium mining type. Oh, but there doesn't seem to be any willingness in Canberra to adopt different measurements of what constitutes a recession. Well, no, because if you are the government of the day, having a, a, a nice, vague, easily manipulated measure such as that allows you to tell a story that Australia has had 24, I think it's 24, 25 years now of uninterrupted economic growth, whereas in actual fact, there, there have been periods when our economy has been, if not actually in recession, pretty close to being in recession. Um, I'm thinking of the global financial crisis, for example. There, there was a, a time in mid-2009 where you would think almost certainly the economy was in recession. Uh, national income declined uh, uh, for, I think, it's two or three consecutive quarters. But because the headline figure, GDP seasonally adjusted, didn't, they were able to say that they avoided a, a, a recession. Of course, uh, what happened there, as happened in this last quarter, is that a, a spurt of government spending uh, prevented the GDP figures from measuring a negative growth figure. So the fact that government spending was what propped up the last GDP figure that was not incidental. That was actually was that actually planned that way? Uh, whether or not it was deliberately planned, I, I can't really say. I don't know. But uh, certainly, um, if you strip out the the government spending figure, um, growth in the last quarter would have been negative. So the private economy contracted in the last quarter. Yes. But certainly in 2009, um, there was a deliberate act of government to actually pump all that money into the economy. And it was, um, uh, people were arguing at the time, it was deliberately timed to actually avoid two consecutive quarters of, of negative GDP growth. So very much the government wanted to avoid well, generally the government wanted to avoid a recession, but B, they wanted to avoid a recession actually being declared um, because in and of itself that tends to be bad for, 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 for public and economic confidence. But it also tends to be bad for governments oh, in terms of uh, public standing. Absolutely. And if you, if you become the first government in 25 years to preside over a recession, there will be hell to pay at there the polls. There will be. Um, the, 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 the treasurer who is in office at that time will be remembered always as... 
the person who actually engineered, and that's a bit unfair, but they we remembered as the person who engineered the recession. Um, everybody still uh, criticizes Paul Keating for the recession we had to have, and that was a generation ago. People still talk about that as though it was his personal fault. Right, but but really it was the recession we had to have at that time. Well, the whole of the world went into recession more or less at that same time. It would be very hard for Australia to avoid it, bearing in mind that since then, 25 years ago, we, we, we have had a lot of uh, um, economic reform that uh, has uh, been a bit of a shock absorber for um, the Australian economy. It's uh, most importantly, um, if, if you think we've sort of liberalised uh, relations with the Reserve Bank, and we are also now allowing the exchange rate to act as a shock, a shock absorber. So during the East Asian crisis, you remember the late 90s, the Aussie dollar fell to, I'm trying to think it was 48 cents, 48 American cents. That actually acted as a shock absorber to prevent our economy from going into recession. Right now, the Aussie is falling. Well, I think it's gone up in the last couple of days, but but it's falling again for that very same reason. And, uh, well, there's talk of it going below 60 cents. Yes, there is indeed. Yes, yes, yes. And that, the the floating exchange rate actually acts as a a shock absorber, and that's how the economy is supposed to operate, and that's how it is operating. Um, But yes, the, the, the treasurer who presides over the first uh, um, recession in 25 years is, is not going to be a very happy person at all. How do you see our economy tracking over the next year? I would think, generally speaking, um, probably not too well because we, we, we keep on having the government not, not having an economic narrative, not having a plan. Keep there, There's all this talk about taxes rising over time. And if you were a business right now, why would you be investing and, and sort of putting down money only to see your profits eaten, eaten up in a future unknown? undefined, unspecified tax rise. So I think there's a lot of of regime uncertainty. There's a lot of uncertainty as to what public policy is going to be, what government's going to do, whether or not there'll be a change in government at the next election. That's a very real question. And so certainly I would expect business would be holding off and not actually investing too much, which means the economy is not going to be taking off anytime soon. Sinclair Davidson, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Okay, so are we in a recession? Probably. Yeah, well, parts of the country feel like it is. Yeah, somebody was saying about a third of the country's in And uh, you've got the unemployment figures coming out today, and there's talk that they could push as high as 6.5%. And, and, you know, when you look at it, those some of those figures are a bit rubbery because you don't have to be uh, full-time employed to um, be included in employment. Which means that the figures could be much higher. In the actual figures, yes, indeed. So now, Leon, the news. Well, Gary, first of all, we had a warning from the OECD, uh, the Paris-based organisation, telling us that the global economy is set to contract, with growth slowing down in some of the world's biggest economies, including China, the US and the UK. And OECD data also suggests further slowdowns in Canada, Russia and Brazil, which are already doing it hard and in recession. And the OECD draws its figures based on a broad range of data pointing to a future economic activity, identifying any turning points of growth momentum. And it shows the world economy has some way to go before it recovers from the global financial crisis seven years ago. Now, meeting in Ankara last weekend, the group of 20 industrial developing nations said the economic expansion thus far in 2015, they said it fell short of their expectations, but they were confident 
that it could be turned around. Well, yeah, you got to, but it's like Australia. You've got, got to restore business confidence before you're going to get any movement. Well, that's right. I mean, look, the G20 nations, which met in Ankara last weekend, pledged to refrain from uh, what they call competitive devaluations and resist all forms of protectionism. And uh, this commitment follows China's surprise decision in July to revalue the one in an attempt to contain the bursting of its stock market bubble, causing the currency to drop the sharpest rate in 21 years. And that triggered exchange rate declines around the emerging world with concerns about what the weaker yarn would hurt countries exporting to China. Now, Chinese Finance Minister Lu Jiwei told that meeting that the China had to deal with the stock market turmoil, but he couldn't see any reason why the one would fall any further. And China Central Bank Governor Zhu Xinjiao told the meeting that China's stock market bubble had burst, meaning the turbulence was just about over. I hope he's right. On top of that, though, uh, what happened was we saw China's foreign trade going from bad to worse. The latest data showed falls in exports and imports. Imports from China crashed 14.3% in August and exports fell 6.1%. And that sent overall trade down 9.7%. And the numbers show that Chinese factories are buying less coal, aluminium, steel and copper. And Chinese consumers have tightened up on spending. At the same time, the export figures point to tepid demand around the world. And the falling value of imports also reflects lower lower commodity prices globally. And actually, the value of imports from Australia actually fell 26.4%. And general trade with Australia was down 18.6% for the first eight months of the year. Yeah, most of that's uh, mineral resources, isn't it? That's right. It's a big worry. Yeah, except that we are selling lots of grain to them. That's right. Well, yes, yes, and that might be the future. Now, China's Ministry of Finance, though, Uh, has announced a number of new measures to stimulate infrastructure spending as well as reform taxes and take greater control of local debt in a bid to stimulate the faltering economy. And among the measures announced is the establishment of a public-private partnership fund to encourage greater infrastructure investment by the private sector. And the Ministry's policy measures on fiscal supports to stabilise growth statement also foreshadowed tighter management of local government debt as well as deeper reform of the tax system. And local government... Uh, would be encouraged to do more to meet their growth targets. And, uh, I mean, this, this, this follows the, those, those disastrous trade figures this week, Gary. Yeah. China's trying to... They've now announced measures to try to address it, so let's see how that goes. Yeah. Now, uh, in Australia, corporate insolvencies are increasing according to the latest data from the Australian Securities Investments Commission. ASIC's monthly insolvency data shows insolvencies have risen zero point, from 0.4% of businesses at the start of the year to 0.5% over the past three months. And Westpac modelling has a number of insolvencies rising from 750 at the start of the year to 880 now. And figures released by the Australian Financial Security Agency show that bankruptcies increased 9.3% in the June quarter 2015. Now, Queensland and Western Australia accounting for most of the national rise in bankruptcy and debt agreements were the highest on record in the Northern Territory, which suggests that company failures are running at their highest in the mining states. Yeah, and that, that'd be right. There'd be uh, companies that are serving, servicing, you know, small companies servicing the mining industry. I mean, what's worrying, though, is that this data suggests it's going to have an impact on the job market because there's going to be a lot of job shedding go on, going on. And as a result, we can expect the unemployment figures to go up. Yeah, well, they're, they're predicting 65 uh, I think probably it could be even higher, heading towards seven. Now, at the same time, the Australian dollar has dropped to a new six-year low after US job figures, figures released at the end of last week increased the chances that the Federal Reserve will lift its interest rates later this month. And the Aussie is now trading at around 69 cents. It actually went up to about 70 cents yesterday, but no one is expecting it's going to stay there for too long. Now, 69 cents is its lowest level since 
April 2009. And this follows a U.S. Labor Department data released on Friday showing that America's unemployment rate fell to 5.1%. That's the lowest since 2008. And the economy added a modest 173,000 new jobs. And now Westpac reckons the Australian Aussie is going to end the year at 66 cents, which is down from its earlier forecast of 70 cents. Well, historically, of course, it has been as low as 48. 48, yeah, yeah. And it could it could drop more. But, of course, all of this, some of this nervousness is because uh, Janet Yellen has uh, forecast that there'll be a rate rise there. That's right. Well, the question is when. Well, yeah, probably early next year, maybe, who knows. But uh, Well, she's staying this year, so it could be either this month or next month. But that's going to affect the share market and uh, bond rates. That's right. Now, at the same time, uh, on the plus side, uh, construction activity has ended four straight months of contraction, swinging sharply to expansion in August. The Australian Industry Group and Housing Industry Association's performance of construction index actually rose 6.7 points to 53.8 in a month, and that compared to July's reading of 47.1. 53.8 versus 47.1. This is the highest reading for the index since it reached 59.1 points in September 2014, and that's a good sign, Gary. It is a good sign, yeah. On the downside, though, consumer confidence has plunged to a 14-month low, following last week's GDP figures showing Australia's economy growing at a subpar 2%. The latest ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index slipped 5.8%, and uh, that's the lowest level since July 2014. The figures coincide with the release of the latest Roy Morgan's Research Business Confidence Index, which declined by 9.7 points in August to 102.6. And according to Roy Morgan's figures, business confidence is now down 13.5 points to 11.6%, and it's well below the five-year average of 116.9 and it's down to its lowest level since August 2011. At the same time, the National Australia Bank Confidence Index fell to its lowest level since mid-2013 and the Westpac Melbourne Institute Monthly Consumer Index crashed 5.6% to 93.9% and uh, Westpac Chief Economist Bill Evans reckons that's because of the turmoil in the share market, worrying data for China from China, Australia's bad GDP figures and also the state of the dollar. Yeah, in other words, there's volatility everywhere and nobody knows, nobody feels any comfortable about it. Now, the ANZ job series shows that the number of job advertisements on the internet and newspapers rose 1%, bouncing back from a 0.5% fall in July. But ANZ Chief Economist Warren Hogan reckons employment growth is unlikely to pick up in the coming months because of job losses in mining and manufacturing and a weak investment outlook. Now, some interesting corporate news, Gary. Uh, Westpac is increasing its annual... Westpac is embracing all things digital. It's increasing its annual investment spending by up to 20% to $1.3 billion to accelerate its rollout of technology. And the aim is to add more than 1 million new customers over the next two years. That's up 10%. Westpac CEO Brian Hartzer, who replaced the high-profile Gail Kelly in February, told a market briefing that, incre- that the increased spend of $200 million a year would build efficiency growth, increase the number of products per customer by 2017, and would do this by shrink focusing largely on technology and all things digital. And as part of that, Westpac will be shrinking its branches and making what's left more high-tech, turning them into 24-hour lobbies with high-end ATMs and technology, which Mr. Hassett said would make up half the branches by 2018. Do you think a million more customers, which of course would be taken off other banks, is a realistic figure? Well, that's what they're pitching for. Yeah, good luck to him. Yeah, that's what they're pitching for. Now, Glencore, debt-ridden Glencore, their shares have been nosediving over last month. So the company announced plans to cut net debt 
of about uh, by about uh, 43 billion Aussie and sell up to um, 3.6 billion Aussie in stock. It will scrap dividend payments and sell up to, um, uh, yeah, as I said, $3.6 billion in stock. Now, Swiss-based Glencore plans to slash its net debt by up to US $10 billion. And that's three times more than what it previously said it planned to cut. Now, like BHP Billiton Rio, Rio, Glencore's province has slumped because of commodity prices plummeting and has touched a 16-year low last month. Now, Glencore is rated at triple B, which is the second lowest investment grade by S&P. And market analysts reckon it faces another downgrade and that would be disastrous because the company uses credit to finance all its commodity deals and under that model any ratings cut is going to increase its cost before then uh Glencore's chief financial officer Steve Calmo said uh, three months ago that Glencore could walk and chew gum, meaning it could protect its credit rating while paying its dividend at the same time. But now it's cut its dividend, and this about faces in, a, in response to pressure from investors and his anticipation of a doomsday scenario for commodity prices. And chief executive Ian Glazenberg told uh, the market that the balance sheet was in good shape, but drastic measures were needed because investors were concerned about the impact if commodity prices weakened and stay weak. Yeah, and China, I don't think China's going to be uh, increases purchases anytime soon no they got huge stockpiles anyway and the last final piece of news gary is that woodside petroleum has made an 11.6 billion dollar bid to acquire port moresby based oil search now under the proposed deal oil search investors will get one woodside share for every four oil search securities via scheme of arrangement and that deal implies a 13 percent premium and but analysts reckon the woodside offer is unlikely to get up because the oil search board which will meet at the end of this week is expected to push for a higher offer because with the collapse in crude prices a 13 percent premium might not be enough and the board could demand one more in the order of about 25 to 30 percent to get things moving and i might add that oil search is Papua new guinea's largest oil and gas producer and that's it for this week gary good leon and uh next week next week uh, we've got an interview with um analyst chris martinson and he's going to be talking all about oil prices uh yeah which would be a very interesting thing because uh oil is a bit up and down isn't it that's right. In the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ or on Facebook. In the meantime, stay safe and we'll talk to you next week.